You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, turn to James chapter 2. If uh, you want to follow along in maybe a hard copy and you don't have one with you, you can turn in the Bible in front of you to page 1071. We've said this before and we want you to know it. If you don't have a Bible at home, that uh, if you don't have one or maybe you don't have one you can read uh, clearly, we would love for you to take that Bible with you. Take it home. It's our gift to you. We really do believe that the words contained in it are from our God and are important and you need them and we need them, which is why we spend the time we do every Sunday going through them. So take it with you. But in any case, turn to James chapter 2. We're going to continue. We're going to see today one of the beauties that we do in walking through books of the Bible, which is our regular practice. We're going to build off of last week's text, a text that I believe is at the heart of the entire letter. And so we're going to walk through that today. But before we get there, let me ask a few questions to set us up this morning. Let me just start really generally. Who does our world esteem? Who does our world give honor to? Maybe, maybe not names, I mean, although you can probably think of those as well. Maybe it's categories for you. Who are the categories of people that we give glory to? Now let me make it a little more personal. What about you? Who are the types of people that you give uh, your allegiance to or you give honor to or that you spend your time reading about or hearing from or caring what they think about on a certain topic or a situation? If I had to go over topics, if I had to group categories of people, I think I could start with generally the people that are really good at throwing, kicking, hitting, shooting some type of ball. We seem to care a lot about what they think on other topics because they can do that. Maybe it's for you artists or actors or random people who make videos and put them online, but thousands of people watch them, and so you seem to care what they think as well. Maybe it's politicians. Maybe it's famous CEOs. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch, but you get the idea. We esteem these types of people. Let me make it even more personal. Think about your friends that you have. Think about the networks of people that you try to maintain through your work. How many of these people in your network, how many of these friends that you have are people that are in a much lower status than yourself? My guess is probably not many. But if we ever stop to ask why, why are the friends that we have mostly like us or maybe even in a place better than us? Why are the networks of people that we work hard to maintain, people that are at least like us, if not better, why are the people that we listen to uh, who they are. Why? I don't want to answer that quite yet because I think the answer, at least partly of that, is in our text. But I just want you to be thinking about that as we move into our text today. Why do the friends that I have, why is the network that I maintain mostly consistent of people that are in my same socioeconomic situation or greater? Before we jump in our text today, I said we were building on last week's text. Let me recap quickly for you. Last week, and we looked at the end of chapter 1 of James 1, and we said that we are supposed to be doers of the Word, not just hearers. 
That it's not good enough just to have enough knowledge, but that we must be people that act that out, that live out the gospel. At the end of chapter 1, James gives us a picture, though, of what worthless religion is, useless religion. And he attaches it to not being able to control our tongue, which Jesus attached earlier that our tongue speaks out of what's in our heart. And so what's in our heart is not what's good, and that becomes useless or worthless religion. True religion, on the other hand, we get a picture of at the end of James 1, and it has to do with caring for people who can't care for themselves or can't care for themselves well. They bring nothing to the table when we care for them. We get nothing back when we care for them. That's a picture of true religion. And compare that to how our world views people like that. At least in pockets of our society, kids sometimes are unwanted, so let me just rid myself of this thing that's in my body. Or there are places being talked about right now, maybe in, in your areas that you know about, or I definitely know in other places around the world, that elderly people or disabled people, they get to a point where they're not bringing anything to the table. They're, they're a drain on our society. Or maybe me who's having to take care of them, and so we're genuinely having conversation that is euthanasia okay because it's better for me or better for our society. That's what our world does with people that are vulnerable. But that's the opposite of what the gospel calls for us to look at people like. And they'd already got to this. Why? Because we're the ones who are poor. We're the ones who are wretched. We're going to identify more with that man in, in verses 2 and 3 of our story today who bring nothing to the table except filthiness. And yet Jesus came for us. So Christians aren't to look at people based on what they're bringing to the table or what they're bringing to our family or what they're bringing to our church. Rather, we're to see all people made in the image of God. The ones who Christ died for. And then lastly, at the end of chapter 1, it says that we're supposed to keep ourselves unstained from this world. Now, we live in a world that loves branding things. Uh, kids follow some, some guys who do trick shots and things like this, and we joke at how many things that they will put their brand on. They'll put it on everything. It's not just hats and shirts and cups and mugs. It's frisbees and bats and balls and, and whatever else. Our world loves stamping things with its brand. And I'm not saying that's terrible. But it is a picture of what happens when we live too much in the world and not enough kept unstained from Christ. Everywhere you go, the world is stamping you with who it is. But what did Christ's blood do for us? The Bible said it washed us white as snow. And so we as Christians are to live lives and engage and act in such a way that testify to this cleansing work of Christ. True Christians then care for all people, especially those that the world overlooks or looks down on or strive not to be entangled in the sins of the captivate our societies. That's what it means for us to not be stained by the world. So our text this week and even next week filter out through that passage. We are to be Christians, not in name only, but ones who by our obedience testify to who Christ is and what He's done for us. So more specifically for our text today, what we are going to see really plainly is that favoritism, which is the sin we're going to talk about today, favoritism displays a lack of mercy and is contrary to genuine faith. So if you're a Christian here this morning, here's what the call is. We are to evidence our right relationship to Christ by how we treat others. Evidence who we are. 
by our actions. We're in the shadow of last week's text, and we're being shown practical ways in which we are to live as Christians who evidence our faith and grow towards maturity. That's what we're trying to do. So in our passage today, James moves from from a very specific sin of partiality or favoritism to a really broad truth. So that's what I want to draw for you today. In the first few verses, James is going to speak of a very particular sin that's often overlooked and apparently was being overlooked in the church. And then he points to a broader reality that our sin exemplifies who we were in Christ or who we were before we were in Christ. And then lastly... Ultimately, it's going to put our sin of partiality in the context of eternal judgment. That's where we're headed. Starting from specific, moving more broad. That's what James is doing. And so my goal here is to tease out James' admonition of this sin within the church, and and if we're honest, even possibly our church. And I want to look at the reasons why this sin is so harmful and why we shouldn't show it. And then finally, I want to look at the solution to avoid this sin embedded in these verses. So effectively, I've just told you, we're going to walk through this text three times. So don't get too excited when I get to verse 12 and 13. It doesn't mean we're quite done yet. But we're going to walk through it three times, and each time pulling out something just a little bit different so we can see what James is telling us, we can see why it's so harmful, and then hopefully see what the solution for that is. So in James chapter 2, verse 1, he starts like this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism. Let me stop there, and before we can go anywhere else, I think we should define this word. Your version may say partiality. I'm going to use those words interchangeably today. So let me define this word that James calls a sin in verse 9. So I did an experiment. I went to my kids, and I said, okay, what is partiality? Now, I got a mixture of really strange-looking faces all the way to a really quick, I have no idea. And if you knew my kids, you could probably guess which one, you know, which ones fall into which category. But nonetheless, I said, okay, they don't know what partiality is. Fair, we don't use that word a lot. How about what is favoritism? And immediately, it's when you treat someone else different than somebody else. Or you like someone more than the other person. I think it's a pretty good answer. For our context today, favoritism or, or partiality is when you base your treatment your attitude, your response to someone on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. It's really, really generic, right? It's when you treat someone based on something that shouldn't be a reason of why you treat them that way. Well, that's just a definition. Definitions are fine, but James gives us a hypothetical example to illustrate it. Although from the wording in 5 through 7, sounds like this was actually going on, maybe not specifically like this, but this sin was going on in the church. So we've already read it, so let me tell you the story here. There's a group of Christians meeting, and there's some discussion if it's what type of meeting it is, but it's my best understanding here that it's a worship gathering like ours today. And at that point, it was probably full, and and so they would have had people or ushers at the back, maybe even deacons that were, were, as people were coming in, especially visitors, were helping them find a seat. And so in walked two different men to this worship gathering. The first guest of our story arrives... And he's dressed extremely well. I mean, he's wearing attire that from the very beginning show us and distinguish him very quickly that he is not like ordinary people. The Bible says he's wearing a gold ring. It could have even been a whole ring full of, a whole finger full of gold rings. 
It's meant to display his wealth, but also potentially his authority in that culture. And then it says he was wearing fine clothes. Well, the word fine there, we, we kind of use that for a lot of things. The word fine here is really more to be understood as radiant or brilliant or shiny. And I'm not going to lie, when I thought about this man wearing it was shiny, it, it made me, if you haven't seen the movie Moana, I'm sorry, but, but there's a crab at the bottom of the ocean and he's bedazzled himself and he sings this song about that he's shiny and I can't get it out of my head, but this man walks in and his clothes are understood to be shiny. It's okay if you haven't seen the movie. It doesn't change the main idea. The main point here is when this man walked in, everybody noticed him. And everybody understood that he was wealthy and probably very powerful. And so as such, he is used to people treating him with honor and respect and dignity. And so that's guest one. Guest two walks in. And the Bible describes him extremely differently. It says he's poor and his clothes were filthy or shabby. And for the context here, poor wasn't just simply, he was in a little bit lower socioeconomic uh, group of people. The word poor here understands that these were people that were destitute. It was a way of describing people that often had been treated wrongly. They'd often had injustice committed by others, often the wealthy and the powerful against them, and so they were destitute. So you have these two men, and how is the church going to respond? We've read the story. The man that's shiny gets a really nice seat. And the one who's poor and who's filthy, maybe smells a little bit, is told, "Why, well, hey, why don't you go stand over there? And if you really do want to sit down, why don't you sit here by my footstool? I mean, he doesn't even get the footstool. He has to sit on the floor by the footstool. This is what James calls favoritism. Riches and poverty should not be a reason why these two men are treated differently, and yet they are. So treating them differently based on their wealth is favoritism. Look, James wrote this so that it would be super obvious to everybody that was reading it. But verse 4 drives home his point. If this were to happen in the church, if this were to happen in our church, then what James says is not only have you just been simply impolite to the poor one, you've become a judge over him, and not just a judge, but a judge with evil motives. It's not a small thing when we treat people differently because of some outside factor. And it's not as if it might happen in the church. Verse 6 seems to imply it's more than just a proverb. It was happening. And they are dishonoring the poor. So church, we have to ask the question, are we treating people differently based on things we should not be basing it on? Are we at fault for this as well? Alright, so that's the specific sin. Now he's broadening it. If there's any chance that they missed how big of a deal it is, the partiality is to God, James expands our view. And he goes on to show us that how we treat people differently based on external factors we're not merely failing to be hearers and doers of the word, but we're more identified with our life prior to Christ than as his children. It's no longer just this one tiny sin. Now you are identified not as a believer, but as the world is identified. Looking at verses 8 through 11, we're called to love one another. But instead, we've transgressed the law of the Lord and are condemned as lawbreakers. Christ has redeemed us. 
He's redeemed us from condemnation, and yet we show favoritism to someone and not others. Aren't we a picture of, are we a picture of the pure and undefiled followers of Christ that He's called us to be? No, instead we look more like the world that we're called to remain unstained from. And then as we get to James's most broad, general application of this, the last two verses, he reminds his readers that each one of them, each one of us, will stand before God in final judgment. It's a future, it's a coming judgment. It ought to impact the way they live. But before I can, before we just move on, let me go to the words of, of verse 12 and explain this just a little bit. Because he says in verse 12, Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. What's the law of freedom? James doesn't really define it. It seemed to be something that just would have been understood by the church. So since he doesn't define it exactly, I want to borrow from, uh, from, from a different passage to help our definition here. From Galatians 5, and Paul writes this in 5.13. For you are called to freedoms, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul says in Galatians, Christians are set free from their sins, and that is, if we're forgiven and freed from condemnation and this dominion of sin, now we are to live in that freedom, forgiven, not condemned by God. And so does that freedom produce... Lawlessness? Does that freedom just allow us to go do whatever we want and treat people however we want? No, that freedom produces love. James gives his understanding of that in verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, when pushed on what the whole law of God stands on, he says it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our freedom produces love. For both Paul and James here, love is the natural fruit. It's the necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is the kind of law that governs us when we are freed from condemnation by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. And we'll be judged under this law of freedom. And if we have not loved, we will perish. Because there will be no evidence that we've been born again and justified by faith. So see, our partiality, little sin that we started with, is put in the context of your eternal judgment. It's not a light thing. How we treat others is evidence of our relation to Christ or lack thereof. If we've been set free from sin's condemnation and dominion by Christ, then we are to live in freedom. And in this freedom, there is a law, and that law is love. So we will be judged under this law. And this law says, don't show favoritism. Alright, so I quickly skipped along our passage. Hopefully hitting the highlights so you can see what James is doing. His admonition against favoritism is not a small thing that was plaguing the church then and is plaguing the church now. We're in the context, after last week's passage, of looking for genuine tests of faith. And one of the genuine tests, if, if, if we have genuine faith, is how we treat others. So does the way we treat others reflect God's saving work in Christ, His love that's been shown to us? Or is it how the world makes distinguishing or distinctions of peoples? 
and therefore should be filed alongside of not taming the tongue is useless, useless and worthless religion. What does the way we treat others say about who we are? All right, so I'm hoping you're believing that favoritism is not okay with God. But God doesn't just simply give us these laws or these rules sometimes. Sometimes He gives us the why. And I think He gives us the why here. He gives us the why, which is great, because the pattern of favoritism, if we're really honest, is so ingrained in our society. Sometimes we don't even notice what's going on. We don't understand that when we walk into a room of people like this or this or this, we're going to naturally go towards people that are usually like us, or somewhere maybe in a better spot than us. We're often not drawn to the people that are very different from us, or maybe in a lower standing than us. It's ingrained in us, unfortunately. Sometimes if we're honest, it's ingrained in our church. So we need to see how faith and favoritism are totally incompatible. So I'm going to quickly just give you the reasons why favoritism is so damaging. They'll be on the screen. Looking at verses 2 through 4, favoritism reveals a judging heart and behind it evil thinking. Favoritism to the rich contradicts God's heart because He has chosen many of the poor for Himself. See that in verse 5. Favoritism dishonors people created in the image of God. Favoritism to the rich honors those who oppress and take advantage of others and even sometimes blaspheme the name of Christ. Favoritism makes you a transgressor of the entire law of God. Favoritism, in verse at the end, is not mercy. And if you don't show mercy, you will perish. That's why favoritism is harmful. And so while James's main focus for his churches that he's writing to is on the, the socioeconomic understanding, that this, this status of one person versus another based on wealth, I want to challenge us to see this sin of partiality to include race. Now why do I say that? This word for partiality or favoritism is used in several places in the New Testament. And I want to give you just one example because of our time today out of Romans 2. Paul here is writing in Romans to a group that is ethnically and racially and religiously diverse. And he's dealing with those issues in the first part of, of Romans here. And he says that both sides, Jews and Greeks, are liable to judgment because of their sin. One doesn't get a pass because they're Jewish or because they're more well-to-do or because they've been in the people of God longer. None of them get a pass. Why? Because verse 11 says there is no favoritism with God. So I think James and Paul would be very happy and okay with us using this text. It focuses uh, on partiality because of riches to say that it also applies to race. Good treatment, bad treatment. Honor, dishonor. Rejection, acceptance. None of that should be based on riches or race or anything else that we sometimes divide over. Just in case, not sure if I'm right, let's go back to that list I just gave you, but let me apply it this time to race. Favoritism based on race reveals a judging heart and behind it evil thinking. Yep, that's still true. Favoritism to your race contradicts God's heart. Why? Because He has chosen people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for Himself. Favoritism based on race dishonors people created in the image of God. Absolutely. Favoritism to the majority race honors those who sometimes oppress and take advantage of others, even, uh, 
even of blaspheming the name of Christ. Favoritism based on race makes you a transgressor of the entire law of freedom. And lastly, favoritism based on race is not mercy. If you don't show mercy, you will perish. Whether it's race or riches, partiality is damaging to others. And it's damaging to our witness of Christ. So let's go back one more time and look through these verses. For a solution, if it's there, for how we can avoid this dreadful sin. If we were doing this in more of a a conference setting, this would be the time that we'd want to pause, take 10-15 minutes, and to really ask the Lord to expose what's in our hearts. Because I bet if we did that, each one of us could look and see at times in which we have sinned in this way. That we've responded to others based on reasons that we shouldn't be responding to them. We've treated people differently because of factors that shouldn't matter. But the question I keep coming up to, the question that I ask in the beginning, the question I've wrestled with this week is why? Why would I do that? Why would we do that? Why am I tempted to treat someone or show someone more attention that is more well-to-do than me? And treat maybe someone who's less off, worse off than me, worse. Why? I think part of the answer for that and the solution to avoid it is found in one small word in verse 1. James says in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The key emphasis here is on the word glory. Your translation may have even tried to emphasize that by saying show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, James chose, in the way he put together these words, to accent that Christians trust in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the reason he emphasized that is because I think this is at the heart of why we show favoritism. I believe a root cause of favoritism is either we crave human glory, which is why we show partiality to the people that we think can elevate us, or it's out of fear. So we show partiality to the people that are powerful that we think can make us safer. But when you truly see And when you really take hold of Christ's splendor, His majesty, His supremacy over all things, in other words, when you see Him as the glorious Lord, you won't be captivated by wealth or power or fear. You won't honor the wealthy because they're rich in money. You'll honor Christ because He's rich in glory. You won't favor the powerful. You'll focus on the Christ who, as Ephesians 1 says, is far above every ruler and authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. When you take hold of who Christ is, when you are captivated by His glory, and that's how we fight showing favoritism. Because it's Christ and then all of us. Not only will you be captivated by His glory, you'll be consumed by the grace of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, not only when you look at Jesus and you see the glory that He has, you're going to remember that He left that to come down to this earth, to the lowly, to the poorest of the poor, and to give His life, to give His everything, so that you and I can be made rich in Him. Or as verse 5 says, rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. 
after James finishes his illustration in verses 2 through 4 about the rich man and the poor man coming into the gathering, James says, God chose the poor to be rich in faith. If you wanted to go back through and, and look through the Old Testament and the New Testament and look at how many times God delights in showing up, in showing grace to the poor, you'd be overwhelmed. Let me just give you one. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. He's talking to the church. He says, think about who you are. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in His presence. Throughout redemptive history, God delights in bringing His grace and His mercy to those who are poor. But not just physically poor. A lot of verses there, absolutely a truth, and He attaches it often, our Bible attaches it often, to spiritual poor. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a testimony of Scripture. God has chosen to show His grace greatly to the poor, to those who suffer with physical needs, and most importantly, to those who acknowledge their spiritual need. So James says here, by neglecting the poor, we are neglecting the grace that lies at the heart of who God is. And this is where we remember that, that Christ reverses the status of those in the world. The poor in spirit and the ones who are neglected in this world finding Christ a richness that lasts forever. And the glory in the world to come. But he doesn't just reverse our status. He transforms our standards. James would go on after verse 5 and, and, and really, he kind of gets on him because he says, do you even realize who you're honoring? These believers were honoring people. They were honoring people who were dragging them into court. They were honoring people who were blaspheming in the name of Jesus. When we understand what Christ has done for us, it reverses how we view people in the world. The poor in spirit become rich in faith. We don't honor the people just because they're powerful, because some of those people are the ones that are doing great harm to the church. So not only should Christians be captivated by the glory of Jesus, not only should they be consumed by His grace, but James tells us in verse 8 that fulfilling the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself honors the Lord. He's quoting from Leviticus 19, and in that context... It was to, to act justly, to not show favoritism, but instead of showing favoritism, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because favoritism disrespects people. And favoritism dishonors God. And James tells us that if you break one law, you've broken all of them. And in the process, you offend the one who gave the law, that is God Himself. So we need to be committed to this law of love. Not showing partiality, but love to every single person God puts in our path. Regardless of outward appearances, regardless of status, regardless of anything else in which we might divide people. To show favor towards men 
is to dishonor God. It's a serious crime. It's a serious offense, which leads to the next part. If we're going to be Christians who avoid the sin of favoritism, then we need to be cognizant of the judgment to come. James takes his argument against favoritism and he connects it to our coming judgment. As we seek to avoid the sin of partiality, we, might, we need not to forget that we, every single one of us, will stand in judgment. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that we each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me just be honest with you. When you truly are aware that you're going to stand before God and give an account for every careless word, for every action, and it changes how you live. You're much less likely to treat people differently when you understand you're going to go give an account for that before the God of the universe. Why did you treat that person differently? Why did you do... Mm, that's different. So be cognizant of the coming judgment. Even as Christians, we're going to stand before God and give an account. And lastly, let us remember that the message of the gospel is that we all need mercy. We need mercy that triumphs over judgment. And praise God that He brought justice and mercy together on the cross where Christ extends to us mercy over judgment and the judgment that, honestly, we deserved. Yet He extends mercy anyway. James is saying that when you've experienced that kind of mercy, what Christ did for you on the cross, you clearly now know how to show mercy to other people. That God's mercy in you overflows from you. And as you've received mercy... Go extend mercy. So as we seek to live out authentic faith, and as we're reminded of in our text even next week, true undefiled religion or genuine faith must be evidence in the way we treat others or by our actions. In our passage today, God gives us a warning against treating others differently based on their wealth. And I said we can extend it to race. We can extend it to background or authority or power. He warns us against that. But he also tells us how to avoid slipping into worldliness. Namely, by being focused on the glory of Jesus and not on human glory. So as we wrap up or before I finish, let me ask some questions. I want to ask questions that I want you to reflect on, and if needed, we need to repent of. Favoritism is a common way that the church then and the church now slide into worldliness. The world loves to honor the rich and neglect the poor. And James is saying that the church, if it's not careful, will honor the rich and neglect the poor as well. So these questions are for all of you, but if you're a member here at Covenant Hope, these are specifically for us. I want us to really ponder these. Are we neglecting those around us who are not as well off as us? Are we as a group of Christians would welcome anybody into our midst, regardless of background or race or socioeconomic status? Is that who we are? Are we determining influence in our lives and even in our church based on someone's status? Is that happening here? And we had a great work day yesterday. Thank you all for so many that came out and labored hard. So I'm not talking about taking care of what God's given us, but as we think future, when we think about fixing up our campus, 
Are we doing so to reach the poor? Or are we doing so to appeal to the well-to-do that are around our community? Who expect excellence and comfort and really nice things. Or maybe it's not just the ones in our community around us. Maybe it's our own hearts. We want comfort and excellence and nice things. And does that drive us beyond what would be honoring to the Lord for how we spend our money? Look, I'll be honest. These are the questions... These are the things that I've been wrestling with as, as one of your pastors this week who are called by God to set direction, to, to oversee how we spend our money and our time. Are we the type of people who welcome everyone and are laboring for those who God loves? I think, I hope, that I would say, yeah, I think we are. But I also know the temptation I know the temptation in my own heart. I know that this is probably true for a lot of you. It's easy at times to see people for what they bring to the table. For their resources or their money or their talents or their skills or, or whatever. And that's how we can often view people. And if we view people this way, we will fall into the sin of favoritism. So all of a sudden, we're going to start seeing you for what you bring and not for how we can love you. And not as God sees you, as someone who needs the grace of God. So church, maybe instead, may we be a community of believers who are so captivated by the glory of Jesus, so consumed by His grace, so committed to loving others, and so cognizant of the judgment that is to come that we be characterized by mercy. The mercy of Jesus to any and all who He would bring in our midst. Church, as we think about that, pray with me. Father in heaven, God, you are good. And God, we are not. Uh, that's the reality of what your word teaches us. God, yet you've called us in Christ to live as ones who have been cleansed from our sins, for ones who share your heart, for You've called us to be people who love the people that you love. You've called us to not look at people and external factors and, and treat them differently because, God, you came to the poorest of the poor, sinners just like me. And that's who, we're, that's who you left the glory of heaven for. God, may it not be said of us that we've built our lives, that we've built ministry here, that we've built our relationships based on how we treat some people better than others, and especially let it not be because of race or riches. God, if it is, may we be convicted of that today. Because, God, we know there are people in this community that need to hear the name of Jesus. They need to hear that there is a truth and a reality that they will face judgment, and apart from Christ, they will be condemned forever. And, God, they need to know that the only way to escape that, the only way they can be made right with you is because of what you've already done on the cross and by placing saving faith in your name. And God, that does not matter whether they are rich or poor or white or black or any other division we could make. God, all of us stand guilty before you in need of your mercy. God, may that be the type of people we are here. And if we're not, God, may you convict us of that so that we may be. God, we thank you for your word that challenges us. 
may you use it this week as we leave here so that we may be challenged and grow in our maturity so that we may look like the people you've called us to be. God, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise for these challenges. And in the name of Jesus, we ask all of this. Amen. As the team comes back up to lead some music in just a minute, and as is common for our practice, whenever we hear God's word taught, preached, spoken, it is right for us to respond. Now, our responses may look different at times, depending on how the Lord may be working on your heart, and that's okay. But I have been this week and continue to pray for us, for you, me, that the Lord would expose, as I just did, in our hearts, any place where we are falling into this sin of partiality. And I pray that as you respond in a minute, you repent of that. Maybe as I was thinking though, maybe for you, it's not so much the sin of favoritism. I know it's been the main idea here. But maybe you are more convicted from verses 9 through 11. Maybe it was more of that if there's anything in your life that characterizes you apart from God, that you've broken God's entire law, that in no way can you understand that this one little thing somehow lets me be okay. Because the Word teaches if you have sinned at all, you have broken the entirety of God's law. I was thinking this week about my windshield. It's a weird thing to think about. But apparently my windshield came in contact with a rock some time ago. Not too long ago, I guess. And uh, the rock, I guess, kind of won. And so there was apparently a nice little crack up in the top of my windshield, but kind of behind the, uh, the rearview mirror. So I didn't see it. Until a few weeks ago when the weather started doing the whole, you know, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And then I had this nice long crack that has come down, not in my line of sight-ish, uh, but, you know, in that way. And so I was thinking this week, is my windshield broken? Is my windshield broken? I think so, by the way. I'm not getting fixed right now, but I think it's broken. But was my windshield broken when I didn't see the crack and there was just this tiny little thing in the top? Maybe we could discuss that. Maybe we could make an argument not. Is my windshield whole? Is it perfect? Is it good with that little crack in it? I would say the answer is no. It's not. It was broken. Now look, windshields can be replaced. That's really not the main idea of this. But if there's anything in your life that doesn't line up with how God's called us to be, then it means that you are guilty of being a lawbreaker. If you are not in Christ, you deserve God's full judgment as a lawbreaker. Not for something small, but for all of it. But as we're reminded from the end of our passage today, there is mercy. And there is mercy that triumphs judgment. And that came in the form of Jesus Christ. God's Son sent to this earth to die in your place and for you. That when He died, your sin, my sin, placed on Him. So that if you place your trust, your entire trust in who God is and what Christ has done, today is a day of salvation for you. So as we respond, if it's because of the grace of God, then stand and sing loudly. If it's because you know in your heart there are places in which we treat people differently as we ought not to, then repent. And if it's because you know today, I actually do not have a right relationship with Jesus, then come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Cody. Pray to our God.
because He is merciful and He will save you.